Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Believe in Falcons. I'm your host, Will McFadden, and I'm very excited about today's show. I'll be joined by reporters and podcasters who cover the Buccaneers, Panthers, and Saints to break down how the draft altered the landscape of the NFC South. We discussed not only their team's individual draft classes, but also the outlook of each of Atlanta's division rivals to see you know, if a new status quo has emerged or if everything is pretty much remained the same. So stay tuned for that because they were all really insightful conversations. But first, let's talk about Julio Jones. The news came out, you know, and it's not really news because it's just what teams do. They take phone calls. Teams all over the league are inquiring about certain players. You know, is so-and-so available? What would it take to get this person? If you're saying we're maybe one piece away and you're Green Bay, let's use the Packers as an example. How many people have sat here and said they need to get a wide receiver? Yes, they've got Devontae Adams and they have acquired some young players at the position in the draft of the years. But you know what would maybe make Aaron Rodgers stick around? Is if you traded for Julio Jones. Maybe that's the piece that puts them over the hump and makes them Super Bowl favorites right away. So, of course, you're going to give Terry Fontenot a call and say, hey, this is our situation. What would it take to get Julio Jones? So it's even kind of weird that we make this into a big news cycle situation when, frankly, you would be upset if your team's GM wasn't making a phone call, wasn't trying to figure out, hey, who's available? Let's talk. If you're not a true franchise quarterback, you know, Patrick Mahomes is not on the table. Deshaun Watson is not on the table. And it's those teams' rights to not answer the phone calls and say, no, our guy's off limits. But the teams are going to call. And Atlanta has been very open about, we're in kind of a weird, messy situation. They want to win now. They've told us that. But they also want to set themselves up for the future. They knew coming in here, Arthur Smith and Terry Fontenot, the cap situation, particularly with Matt Ryan and Julio Jones. The Falcons had the most money locked up in their top five contracts of any team in the league. So you have to make some tough decisions. When they renegotiated Matt Ryan's contract, or they restructured it, I should say, we knew that he wasn't going anywhere. Or at least we should have. And and we still had that whole draft conversation about should they draft a quarterback. And, And that's, again, philosophical more than practical at this moment because we all knew that Matt Ryan was at least here in 2021. But they haven't touched Julio Jones's contract. And so with all of this kind of coming to light, I thought it would be helpful and and useful to maybe dive into some of the numbers, dispel some of the rumors that I don't think are frankly backed by real fact, but it's just things that I've heard fans talk about, you know, in my own life, in my uh, conversations with friends, family, things like that. So let's just dive on into it because on in his Monday column, Football Morning in America, Peter King now said he thinks it's probably a 60-40 shot that Julio Jones is traded by Labor Day. And so it's all come back into the conversation. And basically why the Falcons would look to move on from Julio Jones in a trade. And it has to happen, I think, after June 1st. So June 2nd is probably the earliest that it will happen. Why? It has to do with the ability for them to limit the cap hit that he would have this season because that would be the reason they move on is to free up cap space. The Falcons will need to free up at least probably six, seven million to sign their draft class, let alone 
any of the other people that they may need to add to this roster. And they probably still need to add three, four more players. And, and those can be really cheap contracts and veteran minimum guys. And that's what I expect they will be on one-year deals. But the only other option the Falcons have, and I'm sure they've explored it, and maybe it still happens, but if it doesn't, it would be a question that I would ask Terry Fontenot. And, and I'm sure that the great people who still cover the team and, and talk to those guys frequently will is extending Grady Jarrett, you know, young defensive player. You could free up money that way, but maybe they have a good reason not to and are just really wary of putting more money on the books in future years. So Julio Jones this year is set to make a guaranteed base salary of $15.3 million with a signing a prorated bonus of $7.75 million. That's a cap number of 23, about $23 million. If they decide to trade him after June 1st, they would clear up his guaranteed salary because that was something in the new CBA where teams now kind of like in the NBA can move guaranteed salary. They're not responsible for that. That has not been paid out already. So think of the Brock Osweiler trade when Houston sent him to Cleveland to basically get him off of their books and they included draft capital to make it more enticing for Cleveland. And Cleveland said, okay, we have the cap space to absorb this big contract, send him to us, but we also want a couple draft picks out of it. Now, Julio is still a good enough player. And frankly, 15.3 is not that big of a contract for what Julio would still offer. I mean, for comparison, Chris Godwin's franchise tag is about 15.7 million this year. So I still believe that Julio Jones at 32 years old is capable of being, frankly, even a better player than Chris Godwin. I think he offers more. And we'll get to the main argument against Julio Jones kind of at this stage of his career a little bit later. But it's now the prorated bonus, the signing bonus that teams are on the hook for once they move. It's the money that has not yet been paid out to a player all comes due a it all comes due once a player is cut or traded if it happens before June 1st. So right now, the Falcons would be on the hook for about $23 million if they did that. Now, they can split that money across two seasons if it happens after June 1st. And so they would be on the hook for the 7.75 that they owe this year. And the next year, they would add about 15.5 to their cap which would be the rest of his signing bonus money that they owe. Even that is still about $3 million in savings from what they would alternatively pay Julio Jones if he was still on the roster. So even there, you're saving a little bit of money, but it's not as much. And again, is $3 million worth not having Julio Jones on your roster? The 15.5 this year may be, but we just saw in the draft proof that the Falcons kind of wanted to build around Matt Ryan for right now and that they think he still offers them their best chance to win immediately. So wouldn't Julio Jones also? Bucky Brooks wrote a piece for NFL.com essentially breaking all of this down. His argument for keeping Julio Jones is that adding Kyle Pitts to a roster that includes Jones and Calvin Ridley with a head coach that wants to utilize 12 personnel, or at least understands the value of doing that. Now, I'm sure Arthur Smith would say, I'm comfortable running out of any personnel grouping that we have. Whatever is the strength of our team, that's what we're going to try to do. But I think you can make a hell of a case <laughs> that 12 personnel with Kyle Pitts, 
Hayden Hurst, Julio Jones, and Calvin Ridley, that is a lot of firepower for that, what would typically come out of that personnel grouping. And Kyle Pitts having the range and flexibility that he does can also man a third wide receiver position out of that look. So you could still do that if Russell Gage just kind of steps up and is maybe now your number two and Calvin Ridley moves in to that number one role with Julio gone. But that's just not, frankly, as good or uh, threatening to defenses. And Julio Jones, his mere presence on the field, I've seen it up close. I've been lucky enough to be there in practice, to be you know watching every game over the past four or five seasons. Defenses flip kind of the way that they typically operate when Julio Jones is on the field. It's something Matt Ryan talks about a lot, is that there's almost a difficulty in preparing for opposing defenses because they look one way against a normal team and then they look kind of different when Julio Jones is on the field because they have to roll guys or they bracket guys in ways that they usually wouldn't with another team. Even if Julio Jones is not at his peak, peak athletic ability, his mere presence alone until he proves that he's not Julio Jones anymore is always going to, he's got gravity to him, I guess. And teams are going to be pulled into his gravity and you're going to allow Calvin Ridley to continue to ascend with one-on-one looks. You're going to give Kyle Pitts the most favorable situation to step into immediately because now teams aren't going to be able to totally focus on making him prove it right away. And, And we know that he's athletically gifted in the way that guys like Julio Jones and Calvin Johnson are. If you're trying to win sooner rather than later, that's the argument for keeping Julio Jones. But... You know, that's the balancing act that this team and these new regime, this new regime has said they will have to play. And if they think Calvin Ridley is going to be in line for an extension soon, if right now it's still very cost effective to have a player who just had 1,400 yards on a rookie deal. But once his fifth year option is up, they got to pay him a lot of money. They can't, they can't pay Calvin Ridley while also paying Julio Jones what they're paying him. So, it would make logical sense to say, all right, thank you so much, Julio. You've been everything, everything that we could have ever hoped for when Thomas Dimitrov made a trade that frankly could have cost him his job if it went wrong. And instead, Julio Jones may be up there with Dominique Wilkins. Hank Aaron is one of the all-time Atlanta sports legends, and, and he should be and he will be. But you're 32. We need the cap money. Your contract is set up just in a way that right now doesn't work for us. It doesn't make financial sense. It will for a lot of other teams. I mean, again, $15 million for Julio Jones, even if his cap his cap hit this year is $23 million. That's a lot of money. But if you're a team that needs a Julio Jones and you've got the cap space and there are teams out there that do, then that's not the worst thing in the world, especially because it, it becomes a little bit more reasonable and they don't have to pay that signing bonus. So he becomes more affordable kind of to other teams than he is for the Falcons. And that's just how his deal was done. Getting rid of him and then choosing to invest in Calvin Ridley, who will be here for the next quarterback and build around him and Kyle Pitts and and Russell Gage. And then just kind of seeing what you've got in young players like Frank Darby or Alameda Zacchaeus or whoever, you can understand why that makes sense. So I don't know where I necessarily fall on this because I mean, frankly, I'm not smart enough. I'm not being paid to figure this thing out. And there are good reasons on both sides. If you take the emotion out of it, 
and outside of maybe the Grady Jarrett restructuring, that's the main hangup here is if they do have legitimately another option and still kind of make this choice, then they need to have a good reason as to why they didn't explore that other option. And I think the regime in place is definitely smart enough to consider all factors and, and would have a reason as to why they wouldn't want to do that. But I would love to see Julio Jones on this on this team this fall because that is so much offensive firepower. And Julio Jones is the type of player that I think is going to age well. Yes, he's incredibly physically gifted and that has allowed him to dominate. But the man is truly a technician. I've been able to watch him up close in the fifth training camp practice when you have the first training camp and everybody's there and it's exciting and whatever. By six, seven, eight training camp practices, things are boring. It's monotonous. It's hot. You're standing there and it, it, you're sunburned sometimes. And man, it's not the best. But you know what makes it much more fun is being able to sit there and watch Julio Jones work on his craft. And so the same way that Larry Fitzgerald has aged really gracefully because he just does the little things better than 99% of the wide receivers in the NFL. So does Julio Jones. When he's sitting there teaching younger receivers that as you're running towards the sideline, that you want your back foot, the foot furthest from the quarterback, to be your plant foot at the end of the sideline so that he can reach and elongate as far as possible because that's the best way for your body to be positioned. You can kind of pivot back towards the quarterback it's just the way that your body works. I mean, I learned so much just hearing little things like that that we picked up on camera when he was mic'd up than from reading books and books and books about football. Like this dude just knows football on a different level and he executes it so highly. The biggest reason that I hear people kind of knock Julio over in recent years is that he's always hurt. That's just not true. Yes, he only played nine games in 2020. Guys, I think, I don't know this for a fact, but it's just my gut and, and my head connects with it as well because it makes sense. If the Falcons didn't start 0-5 and weren't just completely out of it and basically finished with the fourth worst record in the league, I think Julio Jones is on the field a little bit more in 2020. And I don't even think that we should criticize him for that because this dude has played through injuries his entire career. The want to is there. I don't think Julio quit on this team at all. I think that hamstring injuries are lingering injuries, and who knows? Raheem Morris, who has as close a relationship with Julio Jones as probably anybody on the planet, may have said, hey, for in your best interest, we're shutting you down for the season. Get healthy, come back, and be Julio Jones again. But even in the nine games that he played, he still played 296 snaps, which was 85th in the league. I mean, there were some players who played all games and didn't see that many snaps. If you... Take away even last season. People now have this notion that Julio Jones is always hurt or that he's not on the field when the team needs him. So I'm going to go through some numbers. 2019, 15 games played. He missed one game, and I can't remember exactly why. It may have been a, an ankle injury or, or that hamstring or his foot. But he still played 572 snaps that season, which was tied for 17th in the league with Odell Beckham Jr. It was the most on the team. In 2018, played all 16 games. Again, 572 snaps. So in one last game in 2019, he still played the same number of snaps that he did in 2018 when he played all the games, and that was 14th in the NFL. Once again, most on the team. 2017, all 16 games played, 469 snaps, 36th in the NFL, most on the team. 2016, 14 games played, 452 snaps, 
57th in the NFL, most on the team. So in the last five seasons, he's only missed 10 games, and seven of those came this past season when I actually think he probably could have gutted it out later in the year if he needed to, but I don't blame him for not. This whole kind of talking point that has just sprung up that Julio Jones is injury prone, that may be the case. I mean, I've been the one writing the injury reports that you guys read. I'm sure some people have gotten notifications for fantasy football apps that have been crediting me with that information. So I am acutely aware of all the nicks and and bruises that Julio Jones has accrued over the past five seasons. But he always suits up and he always plays and he always gives it his all. There was a video that came out that Robert Mays of The Athletic tweeted a couple days ago of Julio Jones running essentially like a 30-yard out route against Carolina this past season, and the defender just fell down, couldn't stay with him. And there's something that I remember, uh, you know, somebody in the Falcons organization telling me is that the typical route that a receiver would run, if it's 15 yards, Julio Jones runs that at 22 or 23 yards. It's just his stride, his speed, his acceleration. He runs deeper routes and can be at the spot by the time Matt Ryan hits his drop than anybody else in the league. It's one of the reasons defenses have to be so afraid of Julio Jones is because he just, every route that somebody would run, he does it and then some because he's so fast. And on top of that, he's so technical. He's such a fluid route runner that even if he shortens these routes and starts running the traditional 15-yard route instead of the 28-yard speed out that he ran against Carolina, what is not going to diminish is his ability to get open and separate. And even if he doesn't, he's so physical and strong that he's going to win these one-on-one matchups. He's going to win these contested catches. We've seen him do it throughout his career. And oh, by the way, just like Kyle Pitts and Calvin Ridley benefit from Julio Jones, he will now start to benefit from the fact that Calvin Ridley is a bona fide number one receiver on a lot of teams. Kyle Pitts is this athletic freak. Hayden Hurst and Russell Gage are really, really good fourth and fifth options for an NFL team. So, yeah, Julio Jones is getting older. That's a fact. But I weirdly think that he could have a long tail in this league. Now, I don't know if the Falcons need to give him another contract, but I'm not necessarily ready to ship him off because people think that he's hurt or that the best days are behind him. I absolutely think there's a case that 2021 could be as good of a season as we've seen from Julio Jones ever. I mean, because his floor is so, so high still. And his ceiling remains about as good as anybody in the league. And if the Falcons trade him away, I think I'll be able to understand and rationalize it. But it would sting. It would sting for a lot of people. And I just don't know that some of the arguments that I've heard would be the reason that the team would trade him away. And I would trust Terry Fano and Arthur Smith to make the right decision, at least until they prove to me that that they don't make the right decisions. It would just be really hard to see Julio Jones go. So... That's kind of all of my thoughts on on Julio. Obviously, we'll keep monitoring the situation in the in the coming weeks and months and see what happens. I'm sure more will come out about it. But I mean, he's one of the best players. He's easily one of the greatest Falcons of all time. He's one of the best Atlanta sports players of all time. And I think he's capable of still playing at a very, very high level. It just stinks that the cap situation is what it is, but that doesn't even mean that there aren't other workarounds and that the team is going to be forced to trade him. I just think you take the phone calls. If a team's going to offer you something crazy, then weigh that option. I don't think that means this is the end of the Julio Jones era. I don't think it means it's the end of the world. So there you go. All right, let's get into some NFC South draft talk. Here we go. 
Evan Bush from the Play the Bay show on the Believe Podcast Network. Evan, how are you? I'm good, man. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, really excited to talk about uh, Tampa's draft class. I mean, uh, we'll start with just coming off of a Super Bowl with everybody coming back. I mean, what what was the conversation going into the draft? I mean, it kind of feels like there wasn't maybe a, a clear need. They The team went with outside linebacker in the first round, but you know, we know how stacked they are kind of at the linebacker position. What was the conversation in Tampa for this team going into the draft? You know, it's a, it's a real interesting conversation to have because once you have all 22 starters coming back, you know, it's like you're going into the drafts. And I, I said this on the show, <clears throat> my show uh, last week before the draft was, you know, you kind of have to look at a dartboard. And I'm sure Jason Light and Bruce Arians kind of looked at the dartboard going, okay, well, let's, let's throw something at it and see what we should draft. Because honestly, you know, you're going into this draft with everybody coming back and you're drafting for depth more than anything, mm-hmm. because you've got everybody back. And, you know, I liked the, the first pick with Joe Tryon. It was a good pick. I mean, you're, you're bringing in a guy that's going to learn from the best of the best. I mean, you're going to be learning from Sue. You're going to be learning from JPP and these guys, you know, they probably have a year or two left you know, in the tank before they're probably going to hang it up. So what better way to bring in a guy that's going to learn from the best and, you know, they're probably going to utilize him, you know, here and there throughout the season, you know, depending on if anybody gets injured. So yeah, going into this draft, it's you look at it as, okay, let's not necessarily draft for the future, but let's just draft for the depth that we need just in case if we have any injuries that happen during the season. Now, obviously there's the, the one pick I really, I wouldn't say I disagreed with. I didn't really like was the Kyle Trask pick. And by the, yeah. you know, your smile on your face, you you probably thought think the same thing. So, you know, is, is Trask going to be the ultimate successor to Tom Brady? I don't think he is. I think it's just somebody that they brought in to maybe develop. Maybe when, when Tom Brady says I'm, I'm going to be gone, depending on if, you know, Tom Brady doesn't play till he's 85 because the guy's, you know, he's a vampire. he, he eats kale salads and avocado ice cream and you know probably drinks the blood of babies and, and he's staying <laughs> staying you know so healthy and, and so fit. So uh I, I looked at the as the trash pick in the second round was you could have gone, you could have gone another way. And I to me, I I just thought they could have maybe I think they reached for that one with Kyle Trash. There was a lot of other positions they could have drafted for, but um ultimately I, I gave the Bucks a B plus. I mean, the draft wasn't wasn't as flashy as drafts before because you know you know, right now you're not drafting for, for needs, you're just drafting for depth. So, you know, it was good. I, I like, yeah, I think ultimately the Bucks know what they're doing. Jason Light is, you know, he has so far in the past few drafts been just hitting it nail on the heads with the draft yeah. that they've gotten. So, um, you know, this, this one wasn't as flashy as it was, but, you know, they, they drafted what they needed. And, that, and that's ultimately what you need. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here kind of looking at the, the past few drafts and, and you're absolutely right. I mean, Light has really kind of hit, especially the early picks, which, mm-hmm. you know, when you're drafting, that's that's the priority. And so the Kyle Trask pick is definitely interesting. You know, coming in the second round, I think that what you said about drafting for depth, but not necessarily for the future, to me, that pick is very emblematic of, of that approach. It's, yep. you don't need anything right now. You know, the Falcons had this big conversation about best player available versus need because Thomas Dimitrov, you know, tended to go, Ford's need a little bit more, but he wasn't afraid to take a Calvin Ridley if Calvin slipped, which he did. And that's proven to be a big thing. But Terry Fontenot has been very adamant about we're going to take the best player on our board. 
Right. The Bucks didn't even really need to have that kind of conversation because right. they didn't have any needs. And so Kyle Trask, to me, seems like a pick where you say quarterback's the most important position. We're set there with the best who's ever played. Let's take Kyle Trask. He's going to have an amazing situation to learn under Tom Brady. And we'll see what we've got. And I don't think they're going to be afraid to move on from Kyle Trask in one or two off seasons if that pick doesn't pan out. But taking a quarterback with the 64th overall pick when you've got as loaded a roster as they do, it, it's a gamble that I think is very much worth the risk. So who of the you know day three picks, there were four day three picks, really gets you excited? You know, three were on defense. It's interesting that they went kind of defense late because the defense is so loaded. Uh, who, do, who among that group gets you excited? I, I would say instead of the defensive picks, I, I really like uh, Jalen Darden, um, mm-hmm. the, the, the wide receiver they got. Um, from, I think it was from North Texas. Yep. He, he really excites me. Now, obviously, you know, he's a slot receiver. And right now, Chris Godwin is your guy. You also have Antonio Brown, who they re-signed too. But like the Kyle Trask pick and also like the Joe Treon pick, this is a guy that's coming in. He's going to be learning from the best, yeah. which this is another guy. He's going to be learning from Antonio Brown. He's going to be learning from Chris Godwin. That, that whole situation is, is kind of unique because Godwin's on that franchise tag. So is he going to be brought, is he going to be brought back next year on a multi-year deal? Because the, the bucks are really on a, you know, against the wall when it comes to cap, even though I think now with them bringing everybody back this, this year, the cap is a myth. There's no cap. The cap is just like some kind of mythical creature that the NFL created for teams to be up against the wall when it comes to bringing back guys. So I, you know, to me, the, the cap is just a myth. But, um, <laughs> you know, depending on what happens with Chris Godwin, if, if he doesn't get re-signed after this year, after the franchise tag is, you may have a guy in Jalen Darden that could fill in that role. You know, and he's a young guy too. He's 5'7". He's a, sle- he's a speedy guy. He's got hands that are like concrete that can catch anything. He was really exciting coming out of North Texas. So that's a guy that's, you know, coming in in a great situation too. Um, so, you know, as I referred to before, it's like you're drafting for needs, not for the future, but this guy could definitely be a guy for the future. I, I say when Chris Godwin got drafted by the Bucks that this guy is going to be special. He's going to be a superstar. And lo and behold, this guy has been a superstar the past couple of years. So this, this he, uh, Darden could be that, that Chris Godwin of the future if Godwin decides to say, hey, I'm going to take my talents elsewhere. And I think a lot of guys are going to be doing that if, if Brady retires this year. I think after he retires, you're going to see a lot of the guys that, you know, took the one-year deals, took, to, took mm-hmm. the pay cuts to come back. They're probably going to say, hey, you know what? I need to get my monies uh, elsewhere with taking multi-year deals, at, you know, in other teams. So that's, that's a situation that the Bucs, you know, really have to prepare for, which I'm sure they are. I mean, they've got whoever is, let's just say Let's just say this: the guy that does their cap and the accounting for the Bucks, I need him on my team to figure out my finances because that guy is a wizard when it comes to contracts and just moving money around. It is insane what they did this past year, and and it's, and it's also going back into the Tom Brady effect, man. Tom Brady just makes guys want to stay on the team and play and take less money and want to play for for number two. So let's do it. I'm <laughs> I want to go to your team. You're the pick at, at four with Kyle Pitts. I'm. That was uh, congratulations to you guys. I mean, there's a lot of speculation that you guys might trade down or you guys might pick something else. 
but I, Kyle Pitts was, was a great pick for you guys. That guy reminds me, he's, he's a physical freak. He reminds me of Calvin Johnson a little bit, the stature, yes. the, 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 the guy is huge. And to, to put him at a, at tight end, you can really put him at a wide receiver too, because the way he is that big and he's that quick and making, I'm, I'm, I'm not as nervous as I should be, you know, you know, trying to, you know, with our team, you know, going against you guys in the offense. Cause I mean, you, you guys have a really good offense. I mean, now you've got, you got Julio, you got Calvin, you got Kyle Pitts. You, you guys keeping Hayden Hurst or you guys letting him go? I know you guys declined the fifth year option. on him. No, I, I definitely think he's, he's around for at least the 2021 season. And, you know, I, it's weird. It kind of feels like, and this, this is always the case with, quarterbacks you know the national media it's talked about the quarterbacks before the draft yep. talk about the quarterbacks after the draft but it weirdly feels like we aren't paying enough attention to the fact that the falcons got kyle pitts who right. is kind of even including trevor lawrence i think there were a lot of people who had kyle pitts as probably the number one overall just like athlete in this draft mm-hmm. and i mean adding him to this offense it's going to unlock so many things because arthur smith uh in tennessee at least uh, last year, you know, ran more 12 personnel than anybody else. And now having Hayden Hurst and Kyle Pitts in 12 personnel, it, the fact that he is kind of a wide receiver tight end hybrid just takes that to an entirely different level. You can use him in line and give that classic kind of run look to defenses while still having Calvin Ridley, Julio Jones, Kyle Pitts, and Hayden Hurst out there as receivers. I mean, that's about as good as a top four as maybe anybody. And, and I think Tampa is probably the only team that might be able to match kind of the offensive firepower in terms of tight ends and wide receivers combined. But he also could, you know, break the huddle with a 12 personnel grouping, but you could have three wide receivers and just split Kyle Pitts out and, and put him, you know, out wide and move Julio or Calvin into the slot. And that's something the Falcons have really valued is that versatility with being able to move Julio around, especially because he has all of the qualities that, that you look for in a receiver. So I kind of feel like we're not making a big enough deal about that. And maybe it's just because it is kind of the tight end position and it's not the most glamorous, but I do think that Kyle Pitts really could, could transform this offense. And if anything else, it's going to be really fun and incredible to watch Atlanta's offense go against Tampa Bay's defense because that's going to be mean, a true strength on strength. Pitts is no Tim Tebow, according to <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> As Tim Tebow is probably going to get signed by the the Jacksonville Jaguars for a one year deal. That's a different. That's a different. That's going to be that's going to be wild. <laughs> if if Kyle Pitts is anywhere in a conversation with Tim Tebow as a tight end, then things have gone horribly, horribly wrong. Um, but but I like what you said about uh, Jalen Darden, and you know usually. Hands of concrete is not a a compliment at the wide receiver position, but I, I completely understand what you meant by that. But looking at uh, Tampa's draft, and you brought up the cap, and you're right. I mean, they're the thing I heard all the time. Rich McKay used to say it forever: is just you can you can find ways to maneuver the cap. It's not yep. that hard. You can just manipulate it, and whatever's on the books. I mean, the Falcons this offseason are a perfect example of that. Everybody, you know. They're in salary cap hell has been basically the theme of the past two or three Januaries uh, for this organization. And they're fine. I mean, yes, it's not ideal. They're not where they want to be, but they've made it work and, and they will continue to make it work. But what I like about Tampa's draft is the positions that they added are kind of the positions that you don't want to necessarily overpay for. And even as good as Chris Godwin is, 
and Mike Evans is and Antonio Brown is. And there you have to think about life after those players because the Falcons found themselves in a position where they kept paying and maybe overpaying to keep the guys that they drafted who were productive early on. But the best organizations kind of have a healthy amount of turnover because they put succession plans in place or they find replacements in the open market who are more representative of the value for that position and for that production. And so I like that they added, you know, Tampa added wide receiver, linebacker, DB linebacker. Those are real positions of strength right now for Tampa. But there are also positions where there could be some turnover in the coming years. And so you see that succession plan kind of in place, or at least they've got a chance to evaluate those positions and see what they have for the future before making decisions next year and the year after that. I guess as we wrap this thing up, what coming out of the draft, what is the feeling uh, amongst Tampa fans? Did, does this draft really change anything about the roster? Does it change anything about expectations? Or like you've been saying, is it really just, look, if somebody gets hurt mid-season, now at least we've got maybe a better player in position to step up than they did previously. Yeah, I, and I, I think that's where you hit the, the nail on right on the head. And let me clarify my statement about the concrete thing. It's the concrete that's being poured, and then if something gets stuck in it, it's it's holding right there. Just there you go. There you go. Um, I, I think the the sentiment around you know, especially Bucks Twitter, which Bucks Twitter is, it's insane. Those everybody on Bucks Twitter is you know, if you say something bad, they all jump on you. But uh, I with I think the focal point is everybody coming back. You know, yeah. You know, watching the draft and seeing everybody's reaction on social media was it's not not as bombastic as it was in previous years because we've got everybody back. So I think every, what everybody's concerned about is bringing everybody back now, all the 22 starters. And now you've got a full season with Antonio Brown. You've got a full season with Leonard Fournette. Now you've got Giovanni Bernard, too. You've got all these guys. And now everybody's going to be together for OTAs and offseason yes. drills. It's like, OK, this is you can look at it as they could even be better than this past year, this year, because now they've got everybody that's going to be together. You're going to be learning together. You're going to be practicing together. So it's, it's really about, okay, how can they top last year? And, and that's the, there's excitement because, you know, they're really the front runner to go back and, and win another Super Bowl because they've got everybody back. And it's the craziest thing. I thought, and, you know, during the after after the Super Bowl happened, everybody was kind of you know doing polls about okay, who who can we actually bring back? Can we bring Shaq back? Can we bring Levante David back? Who who are the guys that are probably going to walk away, or who are the guys that are going to be back? And then once they started to to sign everybody, like checking checking the boxes for everybody, and once everybody was done, and then of course you had Antonio Brown, which is kind of you know a later later signing. You, you got to figure out what you're going to do with him. Did we really need Antonio Brown back? Yeah. No, you could have let him go to Seattle if you wanted to or somewhere else because you had Tyler Johnson, you had Scotty Johnson, you know, Scooter, you had Scooter there too as well. But, you know, it's it's another piece that you're adding and then you're just bringing everybody back. And then it's it's the excitement around Tampa Bay where it's okay. And now you're probably going to have a full stadium full of fans. It's it's a great time to be a Tampa fan. I can tell you that. I mean, the Lightning are in playoff season form right now. They start playoffs this week. You know, the Rays are starting to pick up steam too. So it's, you know, you know, you can call Tampa Bay title town, but you know, you've got the Stanley cup and the Lombardi trophy in town. So, I mean, you know, whether what's, what's better way to cap that off. You know what I mean? <laughs> title town, Tampa Bay. I mean, yeah. Tampa Bay. So I, and I look at the NFC South as, you know, it's still a competitive uh, division. I think, you know, you guys have, you Falcons alone have really improved. I think 
you know, a lot of people are going to see a different Falcons team compared to what we've seen the past couple of years. And, you know, obviously you have personnel change and you guys are bringing in really new, exciting coaches and, and players too. You know, we don't know what we're going to get out of the Panthers. Yep. We don't know what we're going to get out of the Saints. So it's it's going to be interesting how this whole division is going to be shaped up because obviously, you know, the Bucks are pretty much a lock. It, it, unless something happens, they're a lock. But I, I'm really interested in seeing how the Falcons do. And, you know, we could go on for days about, about talking with about the Panthers and them being led by Sam Darnold and then the Saints. Mm-hmm. Whoever they're going to be led by, is it going to be Jameis Winston or, or Taysom Hill? So it's it's going to be it's going to be a fun year because of all the per, all the all the new teams, all the new teams that players are on now, and you got so much drama in the offseason. It's going to be exciting once again. That's why I love talking football, especially with, with my team being the front runner for the Super Bowl team. Yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you you've got Tampa. Tampa's the lead dog coming back. Everybody's back. The Saints, obviously, the big change at quarterback, but the infrastructure is in place, and you kind of trust that infrastructure to right. make it work. The Falcons have kind of the proven talent still in place, but obviously the new regime is is there. And then the Panthers are a little bit of wild card where it, it's a promising young group of both players and coaches. And if they're able to take that next step, absolutely, this division could be on fire uh, yeah. competition-wise. So Evan, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, you know, Tell listeners where they can find you and, and what you've got going on. Yeah, you can find me at uh, on Twitter at lbushman07, and then you can listen to live new episodes of Play the Bay on Twitch, YouTube, Facebook Live, and Twitter. You can follow us on Twitter at, at uh, Play the Bay TV, and then also at Play the Bay 2020 on Facebook as well. Yeah, new episodes 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time uh, every single week. Yeah, <laughs> awesome, perfect. Everybody, go check that out. Evan, thank you so much for uh, joining me. We'll have to do this again sometime, maybe during the season, to preview. I, you know what? Atlanta Tampa showdowns. I I say we get everybody in the NFC South, all the podcasters, and let's do a a divisional roundup, man. I think it'd be great. Hell yeah. Let's do it. Evan, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, man. Now I'm joined by Desmond Johnson of Believe in Panthers, part of obviously the Believe Podcast Network. Uh, Desmond, how are you doing? I'm good, man. How are you? I'm doing well, you know, excited to talk about the draft. Obviously, the Falcons and Panthers have the two highest picks in the NFC South. But what I want to start with is the biggest storyline, which is the Panthers taking long snapper Thomas Fletcher in the sixth (laughs) round. I was just kidding. Um, You know, the big the big thing, obviously, is the Panthers choosing to go defense and selecting J.C. Horn at eight while Justin Fields was still on the board. What are your thoughts about uh, Carolina's decision to do that? You know, I know Sam Darnold is is in there and it seems like they're high on him, but, you know, choosing to pass over, bringing in, you know, a really dynamic young player and adding some competition for Sam Darnold and, and going defense once again after a really a full defensive draft class last year. Uh, well, anybody that watched the Panthers play football last year, uh, more than once or twice would know that their their weakness was defense. Uh, they literally could not get off the field. Uh, as a as a uh, Falcon fan, I'm sure you're aware. The two times that we played you guys, it was a, basically a track meet up and down the field, but we couldn't get off the field <laughs> to save our lives. And a lot of it, if you look at the NFC South, I mean, you're dealing with you've got the goat and Tom Brady. You've got Matt Ryan, who's a former league MVP. You've got uh, a situation in New Orleans where, yes, Jameis Winston threw 30 interceptions in a season, but he also threw 30 touchdowns in that same season and basically prevented Tampa from going to the playoffs the year before Tom Brady got there. You've got all these guys in the in the uh, in the division that can throw. 
And then you've got guys that can, you've got like the top pass catchers in the, in the league, in this division, whether it's Mike Evans, whether it's Michael Thomas, whether it's Julio Jones, Calvin Ridley, now you got Kyle Pitts in Atlanta. So Carolina needed to do something to shore up their secondary. And with JC Horn, uh, he, to me, he's the closest thing to a, a, a man on man cornerback that was in this, uh, this draft. Uh, he's very athletic. Matter of fact, um, the night he got drafted, I went to go look up stuff about him and he scored a, a, a 9.99 on the relative athletic score out of a possible 10. That's second out of uh, 1,790 cornerbacks that have been drafted since 1987. Um, I think, I think it was Rod Woodson that rated number one or something like that. So uh, it's not like they're bringing a scrub in at number eight. This dude, yeah. he's got NFL pedigree in his blood. Joe Horn, former Saints uh, wide receivers, his dad. Uh, he, I mean, he, there's film out there of him locking down Kyle Pitts and the SEC of them, you know, playing against each other, him matching up against Kyle, who many people thought was the most athletic guy or most talented guy in this entire draft. So mm-hmm. um, to me, I kind of, I love the pick. Uh, you know, you go for what you want for your team. I didn't feel like the Panthers were enamored with any of these quarterbacks in the, in the draft. Otherwise they would have done something to move up to secure like San Francisco did. Uh, I think the only one that they would have stopped and paused on if he had fell to them was Trey Lance. Other than that, yeah, other than that, I think they knew they had a plan when they came in that, yes, if Lance is there at eight, we might, you know, kick the tires on him. But uh, I think I think what really when they drafted Lance at three, then that put Carolina position to look at Panay Sewell. They wanted him. They needed a tackle. And he was probably the best one on the board when he got drafted. Then it just opened up best player available for Carolina. And they weren't going to get shoehorned into Justin Fields or whoever if they didn't feel comfortable with them. And um, they told us. The Panthers told us what they were doing. They told us when they traded for Sam Darnold and we thought they were lying to us. So really shame on us because they told us the whole time they were going to do this with Sam Darnold and we just didn't believe them. So that's kind of where all this is coming from. Like, why didn't you pick Justin Fields? They they told us they weren't going to pick Justin Fields. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's interesting how every draft season, you know, people just talk themselves into in circles, frankly. And and a lot of times this was the case with Atlanta is you know, all of the speculation about the quarterbacks and, and everything like that. And Terry Fondo from day one was just like, we're going to take the best player available. That's our philosophy. And like you said, everybody had Kyle Pitts, you know, maybe as the best overall prospect in this draft, that including Trevor Lawrence, it's just quarterbacks go higher because of that value. And and Terry Fondo did exactly what he said he was going to do. And, and Carolina, you know, with Matt Rule and Joe Brady, I kind of like the fact that they are really have been focused on the defensive side of the ball because you trust those offensive minds to figure it out. And it's not like they lack for offensive talent. I think when Christian McCaffrey comes back, you'll really see a different version of this Carolina offense than they saw or that than we saw last year, because I think Joe Brady is the type of person who would really, really excel with Christian McCaffrey as the focal point of the creative uh, scheme. So I'm excited to see what all of that looks like. And again, Joe Brady, you know, he, knows so much about quarterbacks. I mean, he's been yeah. around Drew Brees. He helped Joe Burrow win the Heisman and go number one overall. If if he didn't want to pull the trigger on Justin Fields, I think that Panthers fans probably should trust that thought process. Um, but somebody that they did pull the trigger on, uh, Terrace Marshall, who Joe Brady obviously knows very well, having worked with him uh, at LSU, who on of the non-first round picks in this class gets you excited as a Panthers fan? Ooh, um, that's kind of a loaded question because I was really happy with this draft. Um, 
the Panthers were doing chess moves like the entire weekend in terms of moving down, picking up extra picks to the point where they basically got Sam Darnold for a second round pick. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're talking about a 23 year old quarterback who under the hands of Joe Brady, like you mentioned, I don't think anyone has really talked about Joe Brady turned Joe Burrow into the number one overall pick of the NFL draft. If you look at Burrow's stats the year before at LSU, before Brady took over the passing game, they, it was just average, you know? So I look at it like they think that, okay, we've got Brady back in the fold. Let's give him a young guy with an arm like he had just two years ago. Give him some weapons all over the all over the offensive uh, field, and let's see what happens. And, I, and I, I'm pretty happy with what they did, but if I had to choose, it would come down to what they did uh, in the third and fourth rounds. Um, the okay. Brady Christensen pick, I really like. Uh, I, I, there's some people that are like, oh, his arms are too short and all this other nonsense that you get from draft combines. He was the left tackle for the number two overall pick in the NFL draft. And to me, that tells me that that guy had a lot to do with making that guy look good, like all season mm-hmm. to become the number two pick in the draft. Uh, they needed a left tackle. They needed someone that could grow with them. They didn't necessarily need a first round left tackle because they were going to get cemented into paying first round money for a guy that may or may not work out. You can build an offensive line off the street if you know what you're looking for and can coach them up. The the Dallas Great Wall of Dallas is considered one of the best offensive lines of all time. And I think there's only one or two first round picks that are even on it, like ever. I think uh, Larry Allen, I think he was a first round pick. Uh, but the rest of them, Stefanoski, all them guys, they were all like trash, like bottom of the barrel from other teams came to Dallas mm-hmm. with chips on their shoulders. And it's really all you need. You don't need a bunch of first round picks on the offensive line. So um, I would say either that pick, Christensen, I, I really like that for what we do. The one that intrigues me is the fourth round pick, uh, Chubba Hubbard from Oklahoma State. Uh, he was the leading rusher in NCAA last year. Uh, he's a contrast in running style to Christian McCaffrey. He's an upgrade to Mike Davis uh, yeah. in terms uh, in terms of what he is. He's younger. Um, I, I just really liked that they were able to get him. It was a great value pick. They had traded down uh, a number of times and decided to get him. Uh, from my understanding, when uh, head coach Matt Rule's wife called into the the draft room and told him they needed to draft Chubba Hubbard after they'd skipped over him once before <laughs> uh, they decided to go ahead before with Hubbard, but a McCaffrey Hubbard backfield at full potential is a nightmare for defensive coordinators to try to figure out what to do because you can put McCaffrey anywhere in the formation. Uh, you can basically run whatever you want. And now you've got all this talent on the outside too. It, it changes the dynamic for the Panthers offense a little bit more Uh, especially with a healthy CMC coming back. So probably Christensen and Hubbard are the two that I'm going to keep my eyes on the most. Okay. I I like that a lot. And I, I do agree with what you said about Hubbard kind of being uh, a slight upgrade, uh, but a very similar version of, of Mike Davis. And, you know, he's not going to have to really carry the load, obviously with Christian McCaffrey doing that for Carolina and, and pretty much being the focal point of their offense. And uh, you know, when, when we talked about Zach Wilson, one of the things that I think people, uh, you know, talked about in the college process, but it's also maybe a concern at the NFL level is that he had a, an incredible pocket most of the time at BYU. I mean, he, he didn't really get touched. And yes, he's really good at navigating the pocket. I think that's one of his key strengths. But in New York, he's not going to have near the type of protection that he did at the college level. And, and Brady Christensen was kind of the main part of that as, as the left tackle there. So those, I think, are two two great picks and really two good values, as you said, on, on day two and day three. I was talking with Evan Bush uh, before you, know, you hopped on and we were 
kind of looking around the NFC South, obviously Tampa coming back as the reigning Super Bowl champs and everybody returning. I mean, they are the front runner, I think, of the entire NFL to repeat right now. In New Orleans, you've got obviously a question at quarterback and some roster changes they had to get under the salary cap. But I think there's an inherent trust in the regime in place there with, with Sean Payton and Mickey Loomis's GM that they will, you know, maybe not repeat to the level that they were with Drew Brees, but at least probably keep the ship moving in the right direction. Atlanta, a new regime, but there's still veteran talent in place. You still have Matt Ryan and for now, Julio Jones and Calvin Ridley and Deion Jones and Grady Jarrett. Like there's still some talent there more so than usually a team that has a a GM and a head coaching change. Carolina is kind of the interesting team because Matt Rule, Joe Brady, I think I really liked that hire for Carolina. They're young, up and coming coaches with kind of a young, up and coming roster. There is talent to work with, but now you've got to change at quarterback and you need to see the defensive players who they drafted last year really kind of take that next step. Do you think that this draft class does enough to make Carolina, they were competitive last year in a lot of their games, even the ones they lost. Does this put them over the hump and make them real competitors in the NFC South and in the NFL? I think so, actually. Um, They upgraded the positions they needed to upgrade. The Panthers last year, they weren't that far off from being a a potential wildcard team, especially with them adding a seventh team uh, to each conference. I I, kind of, every time I kind of look at this roster and I'm reminded, oh, well, you know, the Panthers are so young. They're the youngest team in the NFL. I think their average age is like 24 or something like that. They were two and five in games decided by eight points or fewer uh, last year. And in, in all of those games, I think there was eight games or, so, or something similar to that where Teddy Bridgewater had a chance to either tie or take the lead with like two minutes to go in the game and failed on like every single occasion, like six different spectacular ways. He found a way to not get the ball in the end zone. Teddy Bridgewater started 15 games for the Panthers, and I think he had 16 touchdowns for the wow. season, which just isn't going to cut it, especially in the NFC South. I know he didn't have McCaffrey. But there was a lot of times where he just overshot his shot. And, and the, of course, the coach and staff saw that. I know David Tepper wasn't going to go through another year like that. And they do feel like they've upgraded that position with Sam Darnold. He doesn't have to be a superstar with what's around him. He just needs to manage what he has and, and spread the ball around. The, the Panthers offense show they can go up and down the field uh, against anyone. They were going toe-for-toe with the Chiefs in a regular season game last year and had a chance to win it with a... a, a uh, a record-breaking 65-yard field goal attempt that was just short at the very end, and the Chiefs escaped with a win. But mm-hmm. that kind of showed us, okay, the Panthers have a little something. They still have holes because they gutted the whole defense. But now they've had two years to draft into that defense and the free agency class that they brought in. Uh, got hungry guys, one-year, two-year deals. They're basically going to do competition. They're going to make them all compete against each other. I think the Panthers are going to be a surprise team in the NFL. I'm not going to sit here and say they're going to go you know, 14 and three and go to the Super Bowl and yada, yada, yada. But they're going to be way more competitive than what people think um, if they're healthy. Uh, If the offense stays healthy, they can be a top 10 offense in the NFL next year with what they have. Uh, 2,000 yard receivers and DJ Moore and Robbie Anderson. Um, You've got a rebuilt offensive line, Sam Darnold coming in healthy. You got the best running back in the NFL, in my opinion, and Christian McCaffrey coming back after sitting for a year pretty much. Uh, and then you drafted complementary pieces around it. There's really no reason to believe the Panthers can't be a top 10 offense in the league. And I think that's going to be one of their goals. So um, I'm pretty excited about it. Uh, I know this is the year. Well, this is this part of the season where everybody's O and O and everyone's excited about their team, but 
I, I do feel the Panthers made some moves that made sense. And I think they will be a contender of some sort uh, going into the fall. Well, at the very least, you know, should be a lot of exciting games, a lot of great offenses, particularly in the NFC South. But Desmond, thanks for uh, taking the time to hop on uh, and talk with me about the Panthers and, and their draft and the outlook. Uh, let people know where they can find you and, and keep up with what you're doing. Oh, man, I am all over the place. I have to time. I don't know where I am. <laughs> um, <laughs> you can. Uh, I am the owner of Tobacco Road Sports Radio. We actually do. Uh, shows during the week. Uh, we have live broadcasts uh, during the weekend, a lot of high school stuff, semi-pro stuff. Uh, I have a show called Franchise Players that airs at 11 a.m. Uh, Tuesday through Friday uh, with national beat writers, athletes, coaches, uh, you name it, uh, and panel uh, discussion. Um, you can get there at tobaccoroadsportsradio.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Tobacco Radio. Um, and you can go to the podcast network for any episodes you might have missed of any of the shows that run. Uh, Anchor, Spotify, Apple, uh, we're all over the place there. Just type in Tobacco Road Sports Radio and you can find <laughs> our stuff there. And of course, I'm the host of the Believe in Panthers podcast. So I'm on the Believe Network too. So there you go. Well, Desmond, thank you so much for uh, this conversation. And I really look forward to kind of keeping up with everything you're doing and, and best of luck. We'll have to get you on maybe probably as the season gets closer or certainly, you know, game week between the Falcons and Panthers. Yeah, absolutely. And same, uh, same going back this way too. Uh, I love bringing on the NFC house, uh, South host for believe in Panthers just so we can keep a tabs on what our enemies are doing out there in the, uh, in the division. So we'll definitely have you on believe in Panthers really soon. For sure, man. Looking forward to it. Thank you again. All right. Thanks. I am now joined by Nick Underhill, longtime award-winning reporter at The Advocate, who took a brief detour with The Athletic before founding his own website, neworleans.football, where he breaks down the Saints, uh, provides a lot of analysis, continues to cover the team. Nick, thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. All right. So obviously, the NFL draft just wrapped up. Uh, the Saints kind of made people... Uh, look at look at them a little sideways as they sometimes do in the first round and you know that proves to be the right move for the team sometimes it proves to be the wrong move for the team sometimes but walk me through uh your reaction to them taking defensive end Peyton Turner at the end of the first round yeah I mean honestly I was a little bit surprised by the pick like everybody else he wasn't really somebody that, that was on a lot of radars and if you read mock drafts and stuff I, I don't think you were seeing his name a whole lot um but look, once I watched him, the pick made a lot more sense to me. He kind of fits their mold of of defensive end. This team isn't a team that really goes after like bendy pass rushers. They like guys <laughs> that can kind of push the pocket, uh, rush with power, use bull rush. You know, even last year they they made Trey Hendrickson gain like twenty some pounds and, and kind of changed the way he played the position. And then you know all of a sudden he breaks out and, and goes and gets a really good contract. Um, you know, I I think that there's a little bit of development that's still needed with Turner, but I think he has a, a pretty decent set of skills. Um, I, I would say he's farther along than Marcus Davenport, who I don't really think has ever materialized as, as hoped. And, you know, I understand a, a little bit of the reaction just given the way people talk about him, but look, I mean, one of the things that, that we've talked about on my podcast is that, you know, when Mike Mayock was the general or worked at NFL Network, his draft rankings were used to to tell all the GMs, "Hey, you're picking the guys in the wrong spots. Your value's wrong. Yeah. 
now he's a GM and, and Daniel Jeremiah's draft rankings are, are being used to tell Mike Mayock he's making the wrong pick in the first round. And, you know, if Jeff Ireland were to quit his job and work at ESPN next year and show his whole draft board, we would treat that as gospel. But he makes a pick and it's kind of like, oh, well, you know, Dane Brugler doesn't agree. And look, I think those guys all do amazing work and, and sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong. I, I just think with the the draft, it's the instant reaction is probably the dumbest thing we do as, as media people. Um, we don't know yet. And look, I mean, honestly, the Saints history in the first round dating back to since 2017 really hasn't been great. So we'll see. But, you know, I do think that that Peyton Turner has a chance to be a, a good player. Yeah, I think that's a really smart point is we teams do talk to guys like Dane Brugler or Todd McShay or whoever, but there's so much misinformation out there as well that it, it all just kind of gets lost in the wash. And we all just have this kind of echo chamber where you just start seeing the same guys go in the mid twenties or go in the, mm -hmm. you know, just outside of the top 10, that that's where you expect them to go. But that's not necessarily the case because all it takes is one team to really value somebody higher to make a, a pick that turns out to be a little bit crazy. And if you just look at the saints draft as a whole, there are a lot of players who I liked during the pre-draft process. And it kind of doesn't really matter where they go if they, if they pan out. And that's kind of what the, draft should be is find the guys you like know the skill sets that you require for the certain spots on your team and and then make those picks uh but i think one of those players that that is kind of interesting on on day three to start the saints uh day three was quarterback ian book yeah, obviously drew Brees uh has retired he's no longer with the saints i know falcons fans are going to be very happy uh, for that to, to not see him suiting up on sundays against them anymore but is Ian Book more of a long-term project? Is there any chance that he's expected to kind of compete as a rookie? I know Jameis and Taysom are still there. What can you tell us about the whole quarterback situation in New Orleans post-Drew Brees? So starting with Book is definitely kind of more of a long-term play. And it's just someone who was there who they thought had a decent skill set. You know, I'll be honest, you, you watch him, it's kind of hard to find it. There, there's a couple <laughs> moments here and there with him. But look, the thing I'll say about that is, you know, Taysom Hill, his college tape was atrocious. And there was a video that that circulated last year that was like so bad. I cut up a one of his games that like players on the team had to start defending Taysom against like Saints fans that were kind of mocking him and making fun of him for this this video. And, you know, I feel like they got Taysom reasonably close, probably closer than anybody would have expected as a pocket passer. I mean, he had two good games against the Falcons. So I'd say one and a half good games against the Falcons probably is more accurate. But you know, it, it was it was passable, and you watch him at BYU, and man, it was just like, what are they what are they thinking? Like you hear the Steve Young stuff, and you watch the the BYU tape, and it's like, where is this coming from? Why do they like him? And and it got close. So I think Ian Book is starting at a higher point. Mm -hmm. So if they think they can develop him, you know, more power to him. I think that's what they kind of need to be doing at this point. Anyhow, I was kind of pulling out these lottery tickets, creating options, and if something hits, something hits. I mean. This team's really been trying to find a, a Bree successor since 2015. They drafted Garrett Grayson, didn't work out. They brought in Teddy Bridgewater. You know, I, I think it's kind of been shown that he's not an NFL starter. Um, they got Jameis now. We'll see how that goes. Taysom got close. I don't think he's the answer. They tried to get Mahomes. They missed on Mahomes. So, you know, for a long time, they've been searching and it's just kind of been hidden, you know, the struggles because they aren't, you know, wide open like the Broncos and, and there's a hole there. So, you know, I think that's all that is, is a lottery ticket. As far as where it stands now, I think it is probably Jamison in the the front runner. Um, you know, I think he will have to compete with with Taysom 
if he loses that battle to Taysom, I, I think that's probably not a very good thing for this team. Um, you know, I think they they like Jameis, but I think their actions so far have kind of shown you too that that they aren't a hundred percent convinced yet either. And I don't know how they could be without seeing him in a game. But you know, if if he just cuts down on those interceptions, he makes the right decisions. I think the team around him is still good enough to to win a you know a good amount of games. And, you know, I think the one thing that, that just really has never really been explicitly stated is that the Saints really had bad quarterback play last year and they won 12 games. Like mm-hmm. if if they can get someone that can throw the ball down the field and, and play a little bit better, I don't think it's going to be that hard for them to match that level or this might be crazy, but like even to exceed it, just strictly speaking about 2020, it was really bad. And I think that they can be okay if they keep the team strong around them. But, you know, that's, Marshawn Lattimore, does he get suspended right there, right away? Like that could put you behind the eight ball to start the season and and things could spiral really quickly. But um, you know, I think they do have a chance to remain a good team. Yeah. Patrick Mahomes to uh New Orleans is one of the NFL's probably great sliding doors uh, of the past yeah. uh decade. I mean, that would just be uh, mind blowing to to watch him with Sean Payton and in that offense. But you know, you you talk about kind of the aging quarterback play and and how it really did kind of circle back around last season to bite New Orleans. And that was one reason why I really did think maybe the Falcons would consider going uh, quarterback at number four. They obviously didn't. They went with Kyle Pitts. But Terry Fontenot was with the organization, saw firsthand, you know, what kind of not only kicking the can down the road from a salary cap standpoint to keep you know, your veteran franchise quarterback uh, in place, but that it got to a point where the roster was so talented around Drew, but then Drew kind of started becoming a problem with the limitations that he had physically. What can you say just your time knowing Terry Fontenot and, and having covered the team with him as not the key decision maker, you know, he was not Mickey Loomis, but he was a key decision maker. What can fans in Atlanta expect? expect from a Terry Fontenot uh, general manager run? Well, just first starting as a person, he was probably one of the nicest people that I've ever interacted with. He's really great. in any walk of walk of life. I mean, yeah. he's, he's just, you know, a very nice person. He'll remember your wife's name and, you know, just that kind of guy and, and just very personal with, with all of his interactions. Um, you know, as an executive, he did a really good job of finding, you know, a lot of guys and, and the Saints did a really good job for years of, of locating UDFAs and, you know, he, he played a key part in that. Um, you know, he, he had a hand in bringing Willie, Willie Sneed here, who had a really good uh, run for a few years. It's just kind of an undervalued guy. And then, you know, Demario Davis, he kind of had the eye for him and and he came to New Orleans and became one of the, you know, one of the better uh, linebackers in the NFC after being a little bit undervalued in other stops. So I think he just has like a really good eye for talent. And a lot of the signings that they've made, you know, outside of the big splashy Jarris Bird things, like you know, the the more solid uh, roster building middle class signings, a lot of those were, were spearheaded by Terry. And a lot of the bigger moves are, you know, other people maybe getting overly excited about other players. And you know, I wouldn't put Bird or players like that on on him. That's probably more of a, a Sean Payton thing. But you know, I think Terry was was extremely valued here. Um, and he's just an example of somebody who worked really hard to get to where he is too. And you really have to respect his path. Like he, he really, you know, started at the bottom and, and just grounded his way up through the organization. And I think he's going to carry that same work ethic in the being a GM. And, you know, I think him staying within the uh, division is probably not a good thing for the saints. Cause I feel like he's probably going to be pretty good at his job, but um, 
yeah, I, I mean, he's just, I don't know. I can't say enough good things about the guy. Just like his work, who he is as a person, like everything, all my interactions with him, the way he did his job, you know, it's just all positive. Yeah. I mean, that seems the to be the case here so far, you know, when I was on his uh, introductory press conference and I don't think I've seen a collective group of media members, not, not smitten. That's a little bit too strong of a word, but just kind of just taken by this guy who uh, came out of nowhere and, and was just so gregarious and personable and, you know, would make a joke and he brought up his family, his kids and, and showed them to everybody. So, uh, you know, obviously his work as a GM is, is yet to be determined, but from a personality standpoint, he can walk in and just completely own a room. So I agree with you there. My last question for you, Nick, I was speaking with a, uh, somebody who covers Tampa Bay and he was kind of talking about when, when you're the reigning Super Bowl champions and you're bringing everybody back, their draft was more about kind of depth than really improving the starting caliber of their roster. The Saints are in an interesting situation as well. The, the regime that's in place obviously speaks for itself. You know, Sean Payton, Mickey Loomis have won a Super Bowl together. They have built contenders. And it seems like they are not trying to rebuild. They, they've made extensions. They uh, didn't really let go any of their core, core guys. It was more the secondary, tertiary players on this roster that have departed. But does this draft really do anything to make this a better team? Or is it kind of like Tampa Bay? They're really just adding that depth in case injuries do happen, but they're reloading for you know, another run at, at a Super Bowl. A good question. It's kind of a weird team in a couple spots. And I think the draft is geared towards improving a few of those spots. Linebacker, for instance, mm-hmm. there's a pretty big hole next to Demario Davis. I think Pete Werner is someone who can come in and, and fill that spot probably pretty quickly. Um, I don't think, he, again, he, they didn't draft anyone that got me super excited. Um, even watching, you know, I don't think any of these guys are, are world class athletes or anything like that. But Werner is just very sound. He's always in the right place. I think he covers well enough and I think he should be able to come in and, and start right away. So he'll address that. The third round, they're Paulson Adebo. He's almost going to be required to make a push for a starting job right away because they let go of Janoris Jenkins and they tried to trade up to get JC Horn or uh, Patrick Sertan and they, they struck out and weren't able to do that. And then the board just kind of fell to where, you know, they had to wait until the third round to address that position. You know, there's a lot of things that I think he does well, and there's a lot of things that I think are iffy. Um, some of his stuff in zone coverage is a little bit iffy. He got beat on some double moves. The UCF game from two years ago, he sat out last season, was uh, pretty bad. 2018, you know, I thought he was better his his first year in uh, at uh, Stanford. So I don't know if he's got to play right away. That's a little bit of a dicey proposition for them. But, um, you know, especially again with the, the looming possibility of, of Lattimore getting suspended for that uh, you know, being in possession of a stolen handgun earlier this offseason. So if he gets a couple games, like they don't really have the depth there to to hide what they have at, at cornerback. They could start with Patrick Robinson and, and Lattimore if Lattimore doesn't get suspended. And that's probably, you know, it's it's okay, but they're definitely weaker at cornerback. And I think that was the one thing they had to do this offseason was address that. Maybe they could still bring in a veteran guy or something, but, mm-hmm. you know, you, you can't hide that. You can hide having a bad linebacker. You can't hide having, you know, a bad cornerback and just if they don't cover well and they're giving up points, now all of a sudden Jameis is having to make these decisions. He starts pressing 
and all this stuff about making better decisions becomes a lot harder when you feel like you got to score 30 points a game. So yeah. I think that's the the whole pressure point on this whole team. If they figure out cornerback, I think they'll be fine. If they don't, I think that's where things start to unravel from. Yeah, and this is not the best division to be uh, thin at no. cornerback. So, uh, Nick, thank you so much. Uh, please tell tell the listeners where they can kind of follow your work. You know, I, I don't know how many Falcons fans are going to be super eager to read about the Saints every single day, but <laughs> but Rivalry Week, uh, certainly they'll want to keep track on on what's going on in New Orleans. So let everybody know. Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Nick underscore Underhill, and my website is neworleans.football. Sweet. Thank you so much again for taking the time to hop on and talk about the Saints draft. Yeah, appreciate you having me. All right, that will do it for today's show. Once again, thank you to Evan Bush, Desmond Johnson, and Nick Underhill for joining me today. I apologize, everybody. I know we ran a little bit long on today's episode, but I hope you enjoyed it. I know I did. I thought it was pretty enlightening to just kind of take a broader look around the NFC South, see what the Falcons are going to be facing this season within the division. I do think that, you know, the status quo probably hasn't changed too much. I I think that the Panthers are going to be a really interesting team to watch. And the Saints obviously still have a very talented roster. It all just kind of comes down to their quarterback situation. Uh, Can Jameis Winston prove that he's not the player he's been throughout his career and minimize the turnovers and capitalize on on the talent around him? He absolutely has a stronger arm than Drew Brees did at the end of his career. So there's an option there. But the Falcons could make this thing interesting if everything breaks right for them, because I, I don't know outside of Tampa Bay if it is the strongest that the division has been altogether collectively. I, I do think, again, it's a pretty high floor for the teams. I don't know if there's going to be a 4-13 and 13 team out of this group, and who knows, maybe it's the Falcons if, if there is one, but thank you to those guys. Uh, I don't think there's going to be a show next week. I'm finally getting a chance to get uh, get some vacation time post-pandemic. I am vaccinated. Uh, We're heading to the beach. It's going to be great. I'm excited. So who knows? Maybe I'll be able to find some time and grab a guest and share some thoughts. Obviously, if there's some big news to react to, I'll try to do that as well. But we'll see. Stay tuned. and, And thanks, everybody, for listening as always. And please rate, review, and subscribe. Let us know what we could be doing better. And take care. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.